Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our uh, pleasure to welcome you and to invite you to stay with us for the whole hour and to enjoy this um, Bible study because we are continuing to look into the book of Genesis. And uh, we reach the point now, uh, after the flood, talking today about um, nations, all nations, and Babel. I will uh, like to say hello to my team here, the panel for today. Hello, Joe. Good to have you with us today. Uh, hello, Nick. Good to be here. Thank you. And Brenton, it's good to have you with us. Nick, it's always a pleasure be, to be part of our panel. Really looking forward to today's discussion. Lija, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. It's a special privilege. And Len, it's good to have you too. Thank you, Nick. And hello, listeners. And it's good to have with us today Ken. Ken, um, thank you for preparing this Bible study and facilitating today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. Always a privilege to be here. And over to you, Ken. Please take us through. After the flood, the biblical account shifts from a focus on the single individual, Noah to his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jehelph. The particular attention on Ham, the father of Canaan, introduces the idea of Canaan, the promised land, an anticipation of Abraham, whose blessing will go to all the nations. However, the line is broken by the Tower of Babel. Once again, God's plans for humankind are disrupted. What was supposed to be a blessing, the birth of all nations, becomes another occasion for another curse. The nations unite in order to try to take God's place. God responds in judgment on them. And through the resulting confusion, the people get scattered throughout the world, thus fulfilling God's original plan to fill the earth. In the end, in spite of human wickedness, God turns evil into good. He has, as always, the last word, the curse of Ham in his father's tent and the curse of the confused nations at the Tower of Babel eventually will be turned into a blessing for all nations. But before we get started today, let's seek the Lord in a prayer. Joe, would you like to pray for us? Certainly. Father, thank you for the precious truth in your word. Be with us and help us learn the lessons that you have provided in these scriptures, Lord. Send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and help, help us to be open to the leading of your spirit. Help us always to be faithful and true to you, to see when pride and selfishness threaten our peace and safety mm-hmm. and always guide us back to humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Well, listeners, as we continue through the book of Genesis, we're going to look at the story about Noah and his sons, which is found in Genesis 9, 18 to 26. Brenton, would you read this and explain what is happening here? Uh, yes, Ken, we can do that. It says, now the sons of Noah also went out of the ark with. Uh, they were Shem, Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, the reason Canaan is mentioned is because he gets mentioned further down. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer and planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be um, to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood one uh, 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Quite a bit in there, Ken. Let's summarize it as quickly as we can. The issue of um, having a vineyard is not a problem. The text does not suggest that um, Noah was simply a vineyard man. It simply suggests that he planted a vineyard. He may have done other agricultural pursuits as well. That in and of itself is not wrong. What, it, what is rather interesting is that he planted a vineyard, made wine from it. Obviously, it seems as though he was familiar with the issue of fermentation because one of the sins that God destroyed the antediluvian world for, Ken, was the sin of drunkenness. And uh, so he would have been aware of this, and yet it seems that somewhere along the way he, he brewed some wine, drank it himself, and he fell into a drunken stupor to such an extent that he actually found himself uncovered. In other words, he was naked. Whether Ham was the one who actually saw him or whether Canaan, his fourth son, saw him, the Bible isn't totally clear, uh, clear on. It seems as though Ham saw it. But the issue was the fact that Ham seems to have derided his father's nakedness. Not only did he observe it, but he made fun of it to his brothers, Shem and uh, Japheth. Their response, conversely, was to walk backwards into the tent with a um, rug or blanket or garment holders and place it over their father to protect his nakedness. Now, when at the end of all of this, Noah comes to, after the drunken stupor had worn off and he found out what had happened, notice that he curses Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham because when they left the ark, God blessed Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So therefore, it was impossible for God to curse that which he had blessed. However, he did curse Canaan. So Canaan seems to have had some sort of input into all of this. It's interesting that the Canaanites, who were the descendants ultimately of Canaan, were some of the worst people. If you read accounts, biblical accounts, and other uh, extra-biblical accounts of the Canaanites. Um, lewdness, nudity, and that sort of thing was very prominent in their religion. And um, I found it really interesting when it goes uh, down and says that they, that the descendants of Ham would serve Shem and Japheth. Further down, it says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. It doesn't bless Shem. It blesses the Lord God of Shem because we know from the line of Shem that uh, the Messiah came, and I found that particularly interesting. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. 
Interestingly enough, the Japhethites uh, consisted of the Greeks and the Romans and some other groups as well who ultimately subjugated Israel. But as a, looking further down the track, Ken, as a result of all of this, we know that the gospel went to the Greeks, the gospel went to the Romans. So they shared in the blessings that the Messiah brought. To dwell in the tents of somebody suggests security and safety. And I found this really, really interesting. I, I think it's an interesting prophecy. I believe that God was fulfilling his covenant here um, through the prophecy that Noah made. Nietzsche, you had something to say? Now, we can see here Noah, the guy who was very faithful to God, obedient, following God's instructions. He was the missionary, talking to people about God's love and God's salvation through this act. And uh, now we can see him drunk. So what is what is all about here? Because it's, was this a weakness? Was this a temptation? It's very interesting because this applies also to us. Sometimes we fall into a hole of faithless to God. In spite of the fact that we live at a, at a higher ground, always we have to be careful not to fall in this kind of temptation. Very true. Certainly a very unusual story. But I'd like to take a lesson here from the passage which Brenton read, because his son, Ham, could have seen him naked just by accident. Doesn't mean that he was guilty uh, of uh, that, seeing his father naked. But the problem was when he went out, told his brothers about it. And I would like to really apply that in our life. We are tempted to judge straight away the, the sinners. And if we see that, we are even tempted to go around and maybe gossip about that and do all sorts of things rather than to address that horrible thing, which is sin, pray for it. Do something, whatever. It, this is a lesson for us today because we can easily just look at the account of the Bible and then we try to have an opinion or the other. Why Noah blessed that or why Noah cursed that? But here it's a very simple fact. Sin, it's present in our life every day, everywhere. It's how we approach that. It's how we treat that because it will have... Um, wave effect, not only in the life of the person who experienced that sin, but with all others around it. Brenton? And I would suggest that Ham was being disrespectful to his father here by sharing this with his two brothers. If he had seen it himself alone, there was no need to share it with anybody else. Mm. Um, one of the commandments, which we all know, is honour your father and mother. Commandment number five, and there is a promise attached to those of us who are respectful and honour our father and mother. I suggest here that maybe Ham is almost contemptuous about seeing his father in this state and uh, sharing it with his brothers was not for the purpose of just information. I think he was being a little bit contemptuous. So I think what Nick says is true. It is sin. But uh, he could have kept that to himself. And the point is a very good point. If we see the faults and failures of others, there's no need to share it with other people. 
we are to keep it to ourselves. The Bible actually tells us that if we see our brother at fault, go to him by ourselves and talk to him about it. It is certainly a very unusual uh, setting, I believe. Jill, you wanted to add to this? Well, there's some suggestion, Ken, that there more more happened in that exchange than just him seeing his father naked. We know that the antediluvian world was vile in its in its immorality and its violence. So he may have disrespected his father in a way that wasn't appropriate and thus bringing on this curse upon him and his own line. Not so much the curse of punishment, but the prophecy that, you know, the path you have chosen is going to lead you down a terrible track. You know, this is going to go from second and third and fourth generation, and we we can follow that through the the lives of Canaanites, that anything and anything and everything went on. And um, they, too, needed to be um, pushed out of the land. He wanted them to reform, but there was uh, there was a consistent consistent resistance to his spirit. And um, I think this is something that... Canaan had, I mean, don't forget these people came from the antediluvian world. And so Noah alone was just, you know, so you have seven other people in the ark who have still, you know, even Noah himself's not perfect, let alone the people that were with him. They weren't, um, you know, perfect people. They had the, the baggage of the antediluvian world. So I, some, some people, some, you know, commentators actually suggest that a lot more happened than just Mm. the viewing of the Mm. father's naked body. Richard? I I would like to also to mention very quickly, which is worthy, that uh, Ham did not just see by accident his father's nakedness, but also he went around and talked about it. And without even trying to take care of his father's problem, but in contrast, his brother's immediate reaction was to cover their father while Ham left him naked. So the issue here is that he didn't show respect for, for one of his parents. So there is a lesson here for us. Failure to honor our parents who represents our past will af- affect our future also. How does Noah react to what happened here in Genesis 9 and shown in verse 26, 27? Brenton already read this in his earlier uh, reading of the passage. But Noah, when he uh, regained sobriety, he um, realized what had happened. How he did that, I'm not really sure. Somebody must have told him or maybe he found himself covered with the uh, clothing that Shem and Japheth put over him. Not really sure. However, Noah was pretty upset. And the question is, why did he curse Canaan rather than Ham? Well, as was previously said, there's a lot of stuff we don't really know here, but there are probably three reasons why he cursed Canaan, who was Ham's son. Ham had three or four sons. There was Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Why didn't Noah curse Ham? Well, number one, and Brenton already said this before, Genesis 9-1 says, God blessed Noah and his son. So it wasn't much good cursing Ham when God had already blessed him. As a grandfather, I'm sure Noah saw what sort of children Ham had. 
and Japheth and Shem too. And obviously it appears that Canaan was a bit of a rascal. Now I've got three sons and I recognise there are differences with them. And it appears that Canaan was into all the mischief that needed to be got into. So he already had a propensity to do stuff that was wrong. I believe that this statement of Noah was rather prophetic and may not have applied so much to Canaan as a person, but to his descendants. And it was already mentioned that some of the descendants of Canaan were the Canaanites. They were a pretty, pretty bad group. There were the Hittites. They were a pretty bad group. The Amorites, they were a bad group. And then there were the Jebusites and the Sidonians and the Phoenicians and a couple of others. So this statement may have well been prophetic. It's also interesting to realise that all of these descendants of Canaan at some period of time made war with the descendants of Shem and Japheth. And it appears that pretty much all of the descendants of Canaan became very idolatrous. There was no room for God in their lives. And so this statement, this curse that Noah pronounced against Canaan may have been very far-reaching, not just to him as an individual, but from the races of people who resulted from uh, him. Thank you, Led. That was a really well, uh, really well explained answer there. We can see from the scriptures that God did indeed bless Noah and his sons, which was similar to Adam. Why was this, and why is it important to us? Joe, would you like to expand on this? Look, um, it's interesting that a large portion of some chapters is devoted to genealogies, okay? And some people might wonder, well, what's a genealogy? Um, a genealogy is like a family tree, and we have one in Genesis 5, which gives us a family tree beginning with Adam, and and it says, mm-hmm. says something like, Adam lived so many years and begat Seth and so forth until we get to Methuselah, who lived so many years and begat Lamech, who lived so many years and begat Noah. And then we have the flood account. So it traces the lineage of God's people from the creation of Adam to Noah. Now, then we have another family tree in Genesis 11, beginning from Shem and, and takes us all the way to Noah, to Abraham, which nearly everyone in the world has heard of. Um, and that this same family tree continues in Matthew 1 and in Luke, which traces the lineage of Jesus from the time of Abraham. Now, reading who begat who is um, often skipped, and I have done this myself, as unimportant, yet it gives us a timeline, a backdrop. It shows rather than millions of years, we are looking at thousands of years. And so these genealogies are important as evidence that the Bible records are an accurate historic timeline with real people, real events, and isn't a collection of exaggerated myths, unlike other ancient texts. It doesn't gloss over the imperfections of its fathers and sons and daughters, I might add. The Bible tells it like it is and doesn't sugarcoat anything, even its heroes of faith, like we've mentioned with Noah, if you like. All is recorded uh, for our admonition, for our encouragement. So it serves to trace the results of sin from cause 
to effect from Adam to Noah to Abraham and all the forebears of Jesus or forefathers of Jesus. Um, it traces the line of the Messiah from the very first promise in Eden to crush the serpent's head, that is Satan, to the seeds with a capital S, seeds birth, his life and death for mankind, as we have recorded in the Gospels. So it can be seen that genealogies, while they may be tedious to read at times, provide us with a, an accurate historic timeline of real people and real events as mentioned as good struggles against evil, truth against lies. I know myself, I have gained a new appreciation um, how they give us perspective of where we are in the trajectory of time. And also it shows the work of God's grace in the lives of his people at every generation, beginning with Adam and Eve. But might I also add that it also shows how God across the generations perseveres even with those who openly reject him and he doesn't give up. So I guess God blesses, God blesses his people um, as part of your question there, you know, where he actually blesses them and tells, commissions them to multiply and replenish the earth. And then it gives us the generations. Well, these generations help us to draw a timeline across the entire scriptures from the beginning and it takes us to Jesus, and then it shows us the future, which hasn't happened yet. And the genealogies stop with Jesus because that's what they, what they served. They served the promise in Eden, and it, it, it shows how the forefathers of Jesus and until it comes to Jesus, and then they're irrelevant, aren't they? Because the seed has arrived, he has been born, he has lived, and he has died for mankind. And so I think that that is the purpose. And I've gained new insight into geneal the importance of genealogies or family lines in the Bible. The comments I would make is when you look at Matthew chapter 1, where does the genealogy start? It doesn't start at Adam. It starts at Abraham. Why does it start at Abraham? Because the promise specifically was given to Abraham that I will make of you a great nation and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Joe did touch on Genesis 3.15, which was the first what we call messianic prophecy. But Matthew chapter 1 and the 14 generations it's talking about, I believe, are important because it brings it shows us that Jesus would come and that in him all families of the earth would be blessed. I think that's pretty important. And... Um, Remember Matthew, unlike Moses who wrote the book of Genesis, Matthew was talking to a Jewish audience. The purpose of putting the genealogy in in chapter 1 of Matthew is to show the Jews that this book is primarily written to that Christ was indeed the Messiah. He came through the line of David, yes, but you remember that during Jesus' life on earth, frequently they said to Christ, we are Abraham's children. We don't even know where you came from, but we are Abraham's children. And here Matthew was trying to show them very clearly that the one that they rejected was, in fact, the Messiah. He came through the line of Abraham. He came through the line of David, and you have rejected him. And I think there's a message for us there today. You can study genealogies, as Joe said, and you can learn things from genealogies. But the point is that all genealogies that matter centre in Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul says that um, 
if you were Abraham's seed, you were heirs according to the promise. And I think that's a message. That's a lesson and a message that we can give for ourselves today and also to our readers. If you are Christ's, you are from Abraham's line, just as Jesus was from Abraham's line here in Matthew chapter 1. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. That's a very good point, Brenton, and very well brought out. We also see later on a major event take place in Genesis 11 and verse 1 to 4. What was this, Len? This was a very significant event, and I'm going to read from the NIV, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 4, and it says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly, and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. One could ask the question, how many people lived on the earth at that time? Well, we don't know, but those genealogies that Joe was referring to give us a bit of an idea. There would have been probably tens of thousands at this stage, and pretty much all living in that same area, which is quite normal. The children spread out from where their parents settled. Very probably, the memory of the flood was still well known, and they thought they would make a central place. I've uh, studied demographics in a when I was doing geography in my tertiary studies, and they were talking about a couple of new suburbs. One of them was in Sydney, and they mentioned there the importance of town planners to have a central part in any new suburb, a shopping centre or something like that. There needs to be a focus for that area. And any suburb that's developed without a central point seems to be um, not as good as one where there is a central point. Now, these people agreed to make a city with a tower that supposedly would reach to the sky. Now, I said before, this might be because there were remnant memories of the flood. And they thought, well, if there's another flood, we can escape it. Well, now, they actually began this project, and the Lord did something about that. We'll deal with that shortly. So the question, what's wrong with building that tower? Well, I see two things. Number one, God made a promise. He made a covenant, and he gave a sign of that covenant that never again would the whole world be underwater. So in other words, God promised, but they didn't believe it. They were going to make this place of refuge. The second thing is they were relying on their own efforts to save themselves. Now, there's a point here that uh, carries through to Christianity. We cannot save ourselves. It doesn't matter what we do or how good we think we are. 
We cannot save ourselves. That is the work of God. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not of yourselves. So here are probably two reasons. Number one, they discounted the promise of God never to flood the world again, and they thought they could do it on their own. So God did something about this to prevent this project from continuing. Thank you, Len. It's interesting to note there was another rebellious construction that would be built in the plain of Jura many years later. Joe, would you like to explain this one? Yes, there's uh, in Daniel chapter three we have an account of a very a very illustrious king called King Nebuchadnezzar who made an image of gold, sixty cubits high and six cubits wide, which was quite substantial for those times, and he set it up in the plain of Jura. Now, there are similarities between this account of the building of this monument and that of the Tower of Babel, for instance. Now, both of these happened or occurred in the land of Shinar or Babylon, if you like, and there are even some suggestions that Nebuchadnezzar tried to rebuild the tower from the ruins, the Tower of Babel. However, this was not it. This was an image that he had created in his own um, in, for his own glory. Now, in both instances, there were large groups of people from various backgrounds that are gathered at the site, you know, the Tower of Babel, and you've got this image in the plain of Jura. And they all speak or at least understand a common tongue because Nebuchadnezzar addresses them. Just as the top of the Babel's tower reaches up to heaven and, in, in, you know, arouses God's attention, I mean, God knows what's happening, but it's portrayed as God takes note so too does Nebuchadnezzar's image, which represents his eternal kingdom, if you like, eternal in his own mind, because the statue, if we may remember from previous discussions, is made of entirely of gold, you know. So this rivals God's authority and word because God said you will only last for so long and there will be other kingdoms until we get to the last kingdom which will wipe them all out and this kingdom will go forever and ever. So Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have that. He wanted his own kingdom to go forever and ever. And we might even remember that there were heavenly watches in that account as well, who took note of um, Nebuchadnezzar's grandiose ideas. Just to summarise it, both structures, the Tower of Babel and the, the statue on the plain of Jura, built in direct opposition to God. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be more than just the head of gold. This wasn't enough. And as I've mentioned, he wanted his kingdom to be eternal, which we know couldn't it couldn't have been. And in the Tower of Babel, they disbelieved God and thought they might save themselves without him. Both structures were worshipped and celebrated the greatness of man's own achievement, humanity's independence from God. In fact, in both cases, man had become his own God, his own saviour. And unfortunately or fortunately, both structures never reached their aspirational goals. Both became abandoned, forgotten, and virtually no trace left no trace left of their ever being ever existed. Um, someone actually said the monument to their pride became the memorial of their folly, which I think is aptly put. Okay, I would like to mention that this bunch of people that lived after the flood, they gathered together and they wanted, first of all, to make a name for, for themselves. 
And secondly, con contrary to God's command, they wanted not to be scattered over the face of the whole earth, in spite of the fact that God said, uh, multiply and fill the earth. So, and also it's very interesting that they took a name, the name Babel, for themselves to be uh, famous, which it means door of God, which is related to the verb Baal, which means confuse. Also, they wanted to establish a government which uh, should be independent of God. And uh, as history repeats, they wanted to reset, uh, to make a new reset, uh, like a new world order in that time, in spite of God's commands. Nick, how did this situation reflect the character of Satan? Okay, that's a very good uh, question. And um, particularly mentioned now, the enemy of God, Satan, coming into the picture. Because all the things which we talked about, it was the effect of uh, the rebellion of one of God's angels, Lucifer. And if we want to talk a little bit about this, we can open the um, Bible in the book of Isaiah in chapter 14. And we can read there uh, from verse 12 onwards about the fall of Lucifer. And it's interesting to pick up a couple of words here. It says uh, in um, verse 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend. You see the language again here parallel with what we discuss about the Tower of Babel. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of congregation. I will also sit on the mount on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I don't know, maybe in heaven there are clouds. I don't know that, but it's interesting the language because many people dismiss this passage in the Bible thinking that refers to an earthly situation and king because just before, if you read the um, few verses before, it talks about the king of Babylon and um, God says about how how he will discipline, if you like, uh, the king of uh, Babylon. But here it's a transition to the fall of Lucifer, Satan, who's the enemy of God. And that's why many people, they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in uh, evil one. They'll apply this to all sorts of things and to earthly powers. But actually what God is trying to tell us here, using this interchanged language, uh, language like from the earth and language from heaven. Uh, sons of God, you know, I will ascend about the stars of God, which refers to heavenly beings, and then talks about the clouds and so on and so forth. What will be the lesson which I will take from here, Ken and, and panel, is that behind any struggle, behind any action, sinful action, is the master of all. It's Satan. And we need to protect ourselves. We, we should not allow or open ourselves up 
that the Satan can do his work in our life, but we should place ourselves in the hands of the creator, in the hands of God who can take care of us and who can make a name for us. Not that we are able to make a name for us. Nations today, the horrible war in Ukraine is just because somebody wants to make a name for himself. But if we allow God, and this is probably the the punch of the whole thing, if we allow God to take care of our needs and work in our life, he will lift up above all things. He will make a name of, of each one of us. First of all, we are called to be the children of God. What, what a wonderful thing. Sinful nature to be called the sons of God. I pray that uh, today people will uh, rethink all this aspect of me, us, power, ability, all those things, because they showed the ability. They were able to build that tower. Like probably if we compare today, we can compare that Maybe with going on the moon. That's why people, you see, they, they think, okay, this world is going uh, uh, bad, or, but we have another solution. We can reach out to other parts of the universe. Human is tempted always to do as he pleases, rather than to allow God to work the miracle in our life. Brenton, we have seen man's rebellion against God But what is God's response to this and what lessons can we learn from it? Um, Let me read chapter 11, verse 5 to 7. For the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Summarising it fairly quickly, Nick, I believe the situation is this. Whenever God comes down in the Bible, it is usually for the purpose of judgment. We need to remember that God knows exactly men's hearts. He does not need to be told what they're up to. You find a similar situation in Genesis 18, uh, verse 21, where God comes down to see what Sodom and Gomorrah are up to. Once again, he knew what was happening. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, They were judged. What happened here? They were judged. Now, it's interesting that um, the royal plural is used, let us go down and see what they're they're up to. Um, When they came out of the ark, just recapitulating for a moment, um, God blessed them and told them to spread and uh, spread across the face of the earth. There was no suggestion, Ken, that their language was going to be changed at that point in time. Their language is changed here as a result of their, their defiance of God and their determination to do their own thing. And so the, the bottom line is I found verse 7 interesting, come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another. In the flood, God judged mankind. He destroyed mankind apart from a small group of people. Now some of the descendants of that small group of people are already beginning to rebel and God is seeing that the only way that he can prevent these people from going on a limitless path of self-aggrandizement 
and self-rebellion against God is to confuse their language. What that did is it served two purposes. Number one, it served the purpose of judgment, but number two, it scattered them across the face of the earth so that those who could understand one another went one way, those who could understand one another went another way, and so it went. So I think the bottom line there, Ken, is that I believe it was done actually in love as well because they weren't following what God asked them to do and he wanted them to subdue the whole earth. So here we find yet another example of God's foresight in doing what he did. Liam, how does David remind us of the greatness of God and our constant need to depend on him every day? Well, what Brendan was just saying there reminds me of uh, when I was teaching and you have a student who backs up. <laughs> One of the things is to isolate that student. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened at Babel. Because of the uh, change of languages, people isolated. Psalm 139. Here is um, David, a psalmist, addressing God. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And what David is saying here, God, you know me intimately. Yes. You know who I am, where I am, what I'm doing. Nothing is hidden from you. And um, this relates very much to this business about the people who were building the Tower of Babel who were scattered throughout the earth. God knows it all. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what the future would be if they continued in that line of action. And so I have to apply this to my own life. There have been many junction points in my life where I could have gone left or I could have gone right. I could have followed my own course or I could have followed God's course. And I'm very thankful that the Lord has given me a conscience which when I was doing something that was questionable, I would be troubled by it. And so these people at Babel, the Lord isolated them. He wanted to lead them, but in most cases they refused his love. And I I suppose this is exactly the same today. Jesus was talking about the end times And he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be that before the coming of the Son of Man. Well, God knows. He does what is best for us, but he will not force us to do anything. He calls us, tries to woo woo us, but not force us. It's very interesting for me that um, God, in his supremacy, he decided to to come down. He could do everything from up there, you know, but he had to come down to uh, reach this problem because God mixes himself with humanity in person, not from just up there. So we observe here God is involved with humanity in every aspect. And just to add to that one, uh, Jesus himself, when he said, I came to my people and they received me not. And uh, 
another thing which we may take home is that um, unfortunately happened the same thing again, you know, again and again. It's not all about that God knows everything. It's more about if we know that God knows. Because if we'll do that, then we'll change our actions. Sometimes people are able to manipulate masses of people and then believe themselves that nobody knows what they're doing from inside of their heart. They think, okay, I got them. But if we realize that God knows everything, and Len mentioned something there that uh, because of the free choice, uh, God knows things and God had, but he'll say, okay, it's up to you if you want to do this or that. I believe God find other ways and he always will find other ways to fulfill his plan. Even though sometimes we think and we, we believe, okay, that's not a turn from this point. Trust in God because he knows the final thing in all aspects of our life. And we will be in a secure place if we allow him to take control. That's very, very true. Listeners, while we were researching uh, this particular study and looking at Psalm 139, which Len has just spoke of a moment ago, it reminded me of an amazing event that I, I came across some time ago. You may be interested to know that every human being carries Jesus within his DNA. That's right. Scientists have discovered in the middle of our DNA a protein that holds the cell together, and it's in the shape of a cross. It's called laminar. Isn't that amazing? Was the scattering of the people from the land of Shinar part of God's plan? Brenton, would you look into this one? Yes, I will, uh, Ken. It basically says this. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Now, this would suggest that um, the city was not completely built, and we believe the Tower of Babel was not completely uh, completed as well. So God interrupted their plans. Then, uh, therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the, all the earth. So what God did is he scattered them across the face of the earth. And it's interesting that later on in one of our future studies that we get to, we find that Abraham's line God's plan was that Abraham's line, Abraham's seed, would be responsible for spreading the good news of the coming Messiah to the whole world. Now, I find that particularly interesting, Ken, because it goes back again to <clears throat> what Paul said in Galatians, where he said there is neither male nor female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I believe that God scattered them across the world wisely so that not only would they subdue the planet and set up their homes and their businesses and uh, their other things right across the world, but I think it also gave him an opportunity to be able to share uh, the good news as we will study in future studies with everybody. Today, the opportunities we have are multitudinous, if I can put it that way. Being able to share the gospel is a message that uh, God has given to us today in the three angels' messages, where it's a universal message to come back to worshipping the true God. What we've studied so far today is a group who didn't want to do anything other than worship the true God. What we are called to do today in 2022 is to call people 
men and women, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, back to the worship of God as the creator. And uh, God is able, as we have stated, to do everything that he says he will do. The scattered will be brought back into one when Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven again. And I reckon that's good because here we find scattered, but at the end of the Bible, we find that it all is united in one once more. Brenton, that's such an important point that we today are still calling people out of this world, especially in the time we live where we can see the world as a mess and it's getting worse every day just about. And we are called as Christians to share the gospel with everyone that we come into contact with because time's running out very, very quickly. Panel, I'd like to ask you, where do we see the unfailing love of God revealed in this story? Well, I, I guess the unfailing love in this story is it God is showing, showing mercy by, I guess, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth. They were to have children and fill the earth. The new world, they were to have children and fill the earth. They were to go abroad and scatter and occupy the world. But they were fast replicating the same situation that they had before the flood. You know, they were together. They were colluding together to, you know, become grace and to, you know, there was one culture, there was one language, and they thought they could just do, just about do anything and they could reach the high heavens with their uh, Tower of Babel. And God was kind of left on the outskirts. And I guess by God confusing their languages, he was showing them the, his unfailing love. He did not want them to uh, become self-destructive just like the antediluvians had become um, because one cannot be self-destructive and be happy. Sin does not bring happiness, and they were fast approaching that. And he wanted these his creatures to be happy and healthy and to flourish and thrive. And so I guess God used something that happens almost naturally as well, and that is that, in you know, languages that are in use are constantly evolving and changing. And as these, as they multiplied, you know, people groups will be developing their own little dialects here and there. And God just used the natural phenomena that was would have been happening there, cause that to uh, be accelerated and therefore cause divisions and um, allow people to scatter. So I think God used in his mighty wisdom, he used um, a merciful method of dispersing people um, and getting them to become to fulfill the plans that he had for them of happiness and joy and long and a long life, a healthy, happy life. Liam. All right, I'll be quick. I think God's shown his love in providing people with new opportunities to do what is right. So new opportunities to respect and honour God were provided for these people and that they, those same opportunities occur with us. Brenton. I believe that uh, the reason he did it the way he did it is simply for this reason. God, when he gives um, promises, he allows time for us to assimilate whether we're going to uh, believe his promises and act accordingly. If he'd uh, done something immediately, the Chem was born, it would not have given an opportunity for people to see whether they were going to follow God or not. 
And I believe that's actually a very important point in this whole story today. God has allowed a number of generations to go by since the flood before he brings judgment on them in dispersing them by confusing their languages. He's given them an opportunity to see whether they will be faithful to him, whether they will believe implicitly what he has said. He says the same thing today. He says that he's coming back again. There are people today who don't believe that. And yet those of us who are faithful to the Lord, we believe that we will see him again. So I believe the reason for all of this is belief. God has given them sufficient time, sufficient generations to see whether they'll be faithful to him or not. Leecher? Um, yeah, in the end, uh, in spite of the human wickedness, we observe that God turns evil into good. So he was, as always, the last word. So the curse of Ham in his father's tent uh, and the curse of the confused nations at the Tower of Babel will eventually be turned into a blessing for the nations. Um, the curse of Ham will, in fact, be a blessing for all the nations, including whichever descendants of Ham and Canaan accept the salvation offered them by the Lord. And we observe here that the country Canaan was the promised land chosen by God to give to his people. God uh, is discovering himself in history. Uh, it's my option and your option to accept it and to have it. Uh, my last word is that uh, an application is that God is looking for people who are in a process of transformation, not perfect people, but those who feel and, and are open again to receive God's love for the whole uh, transformation. Yeah, just um, just maybe a conclusion here is that uh, you ask, can uh, how do we see the love of God all through this? And we look around us in, in today's events. Personally, I would say I see the love of God because I have today. And today it's our time, not tomorrow. Today, it's, as the Bible puts it, if you hear the voice of the Lord, harden not your heart. That's today. And that's the love of God. Because God could have destroyed them again and again. Nobody could uh, charge God for that. But in his love, he offered us another time. And that's today. I, My dear friend, I hope that you'll give your life to God today rather than uh, wait to see the um, unveiling of the events in history, thinking that we'll see what's happening and I may consider one or the other. Regardless of what happens around us, our time is today. Thank you, panel. Well, listeners, we can see from this story that there are two really, really important points jump out, I believe. One is the love of God and his patience. The other one is the attributes of sin and the result. Judgment is coming soon and time is running out. I'd really implore you all to seek Jesus while he may be found. Len, would you like to close with a prayer? Yes, listeners, I invite you to pray with us. Father in heaven, from all this, there are some major things that we can apply to ourselves. 
One of them is, it's not how good we are, but how good you are. And secondly, a realisation that we can't save ourselves. Salvation is only found through Jesus. We pray that as we consider these things that from Genesis 9 and 10 about the Tower of Babel and of Ham and Canaan, we'll remember that you are a good God and you care for us. And I invite your blessings on us as a panel and every person who's listening to this program today. And we give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for uh, your input today. It was a very interesting um, Bible study with a lot of things uh, also in, in involved there, and we could have say much more, but... Um, we are very happy to invite you back, my dear listener, uh, next time when we are going to learn about some of the roots of one of the most um, known, you know, I mean, one character in the Bible, Abraham. And uh, please come back with us until then. May God richly bless you and uh, walk safely in the footsteps of Jesus. <laughs>